Our passage this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamb and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Word of the Lord. Good to be with you all again. As Eric said, my name is Israel. Um, just before we start, I want to quickly mention that a lot of what you will hear in this sermon has been influenced <clears throat> by a professor of sociology, James Davison Hunter. He wrote a book called To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. So I want to mention that for two reasons. First of all, in case you've read the book and you wonder, wait, some of what Israel is saying sounds familiar. Um, it is due to James Hunter, and so I want to be clear of any charges of plagiarism. But also, I think it's a really good book for you to read. If you, after the sermon, wonder, you know, I would like to explore this some more, this would be a great place to start. Um, and with that being said, let's quickly pray and we can begin. Heavenly Father, open our ears that we may hear, open our eyes that we may see, open our hearts that we may believe. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. One of the, one of the challenges in our late modern world, in our postmodern world, um, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself even right now in, in St. Louis, is that we live in a very pluralistic society. Um, we're not in a society anymore where there's just one um, strain of thought or philosophy, but there's lots of different types of philosophies and religions and worldviews. And so the question of how, how do we live in community and live in a world where there are people with different views of, of, of the world, of life, of the human um, species? How do we work together? One of the proposals uh, that people have mentioned, and there's been a whole um, work in, in philosophy about this, to deal with this question of pluralism is to say, well, religions should privatize their faith. If you're a Christian, good for you, but keep that home in your church leave it to the side, but when you come to the public sphere, you need to come on secular terms, on terms that everyone else can fully accept everything you say, and you can't do otherwise. Now, there are at least two problems with this proposal of privatizing your faith. First of all, it creates a type of emotional instability. Um, I, I think about myself, when, uh, um, for my love of books, um, I, I recently got married this summer, and uh, Rachel, my wife, is, is very gracious to me, and she's quickly seen that, you know, books in my life are pretty much indispensable. Um, and so one of the things I would do is when I read a new book, uh, when I discover a new author, um, I'll, I'll run up to her and say, I have got to share this new book with you. I actually did this to her with To Change the World by James Hunter. Um, and what she would do at this point is she would get out her phone, she'll get out the timer, and she'll put five minutes on the clock. So Israel, you have five minutes to share all that you want to share about this book. The timer starts, and I, I kid you not, I let loose. I, I go all out, and I spend every single second 
sharing everything I've learned, all my excitements about this new work, this new author. What Rachel was doing in that moment is actually really incredible because she's saying, while I'm not exactly on the same page as you with your enthusiasm for these things, I recognize that it's deeply unstable for me to tell you that you can't bring that to this relationship, that you can't bring that to this marriage. You have to shut up and keep quiet. I can't require that of you, but I also have limits. So I'm going to create space for you to share the deep loves that you have. It is an emotional instability to say to people that their deep loves cannot be brought to the table in the public sphere. But also, it's honestly quite impossible to privatize your faith. Um, we've heard of the name Jamar Tisby. We've actually read his book, The Color of Compromise, before. But before Jamar Tisby was a public theologian, historian, he was a school teacher. After graduating from Notre Dame, he did teach for America, and he went to the Delta, Mississippi, specifically the Arkansas side. And he worked his way up the education, educational career ladder. He was a teacher for a while and then became a principal. And one of the first things he, he said he did when he became a principal is he said he looked at the school and the needs that the school had and immediately had a budgetary meeting and added a tab in the ledger for mental health counselors. He said, I couldn't begin to try and meet the educational needs of these, school, um, of these children until I met their holistic needs. That I recognized that they're not just brains on a stick, but they're human beings. They are full human beings, and so the whole human being needs to be cared for. Then he goes on to say, actually, this came from my Christian belief that humans are made in the image of God, that we're, we're made up of multiple parts. We're not just one. We can't be reduced to one thing. So while we might look at that and say, well, who's going to have an issue with a principal hiring counselors in the school? You have to recognize that his faith influenced that. It's because he brought his faith to the public sphere that children were benefited, that children could actually be more free to engage in the classroom and to learn and to grow in maturity as humans, as, as, as civil members of society. You cannot privatize your faith. So since you can't privatize your faith, the question really is, how do you bring your faith to bear in society? And Jesus Christ answers that question for us in this passage, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. He shows us, how Christians, how the Christian church can influence society for good by bringing the faith to bear in the world. But he does that in an interesting way because he highlights temptations that come along the way as we seek to influence society for the common good. So Jesus Christ actually mentions two temptations on the way for us to understand how to actually influence society. And so we're going to start by addressing those two temptations because if we we're going to see how the church can influence society, we have to actually comprehend and come to terms with the temptations that come along the way. And the first one is that Christians can be tempted to be relevant to society. In verse 13, we read, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, the salt here, you have to understand, it technically is sodium chloride, as you might be thinking of the, the pure crystals in your table salt, but also um, salt in the first century world was really a form of preservative. It's more like our refrigeration system that we have right now. It would be rubbed in meat uh, to preserve it. The salt would essentially kill the bacteria and allow it to last longer and stem decay. But also salt was, um, was a, a white powder. It wasn't you know, this purified crystal that we look at now. Um, it was a white powder that often had a lot of impurities. So when Jesus Christ says you're the salt of the earth, he's saying, one, the church, the Christians are here to stem decay, to bring out flavor in, in the society, to bring out what exists that is good so that others could benefit from it. 
But when Jesus Christ says, but if salt has lost its taste, what he's referring to here is the dilution that can occur with the white powder. It's possible to have a white powder and think, oh, this is salt. But when you rub it into the meat, you recognize that there are so many impurities. There are so many other substances in this white powder that the salt cannot have the kind of effect that is required of it. Essentially, Jesus Christ is referring to a dilution. You could think of this um, this way. You could say, if you have a spoonful of salt and you put it in a cup of water um, and you drink that water, you, you will taste the salt. But that same spoonful of um, salt, put it in a swimming pool of water. And in many ways, that water isn't really salty. The salt is still there, but there are so many other water particles that you can no longer taste the salt present within it. Jesus Christ is saying here that it's possible in seeking to be influenced in society to lose your taste, to be so um, diluted, to have other substances mixed in that you've essentially assimilated to society. You're no different from society. There is nothing that stands out from you when people look at society. Now, um, this temptation to assimilate to society, to be relevant to society, is quite understandable. I mean, there there are some distinctives with Christianity that you could say, I'm not too comfortable really emphasizing this part of Christianity. I don't think it has anything to contribute to the world. Um, it's, it's uncomfortable for me. People receive it as embarrassing when they look at what we have to say. Um, I think of uh, Peter, actually, in Galatians. Um, Paul says in the book of Galatians, I think in chapter 2, and speaking about um, the Judaizers, the circumcision party, there's this group of Jews who were saying, to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. It is not good enough as Paul and Peter were saying, to just have faith in Jesus Christ. So what Peter would do is when he was with the Gentiles, he would hang around with them and fully embrace their being a part of the Christian community. But when the circumcision party came, when the Judaizers came, he would then step away from the Gentiles and hang around with the Jews because he was embarrassed. He said, I don't, I don't want to lose face. I don't want to um, lose my reputation with the, with the circumcision party. So I'm going to abandon the distinctiveness of Christianity, justification by faith, faith in Christ, and I'm going to hang around with the Jews and say, yeah, the Gentiles really, are they really part of this community? I don't know. Paul rebukes him and says, no, you have to hold to the distinctives of the Christian faith. But what's a real tangible example of the benefit or the distinctiveness of Christianity? Last week, Eric showed us um, in the eighth beatitude that we are tempted sometimes to hold to the um, cultural idols. And one of them that he mentioned was individual freedom. And I want to just explore this theme a little bit more for us. um, Because I think the distinctiveness of Christianity can be seen um, when we really understand how it speaks to the cultural idols of our day. So when we think of individual freedom, we think of freedom from. We don't want to be constrained by anything. We want to be free to pursue our own desires, our own interests. We want to pursue the discovery of ourselves. We want to find within us the authentic self, and no one can get in the way of that pursuit. But here's the problem. One, what happens if you succeed? <laughs> Let's say you discover your true self. Let's say you, 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 you break free from the shackles of your traditionalist background and you, 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 you find the inner self. One of the consequences of that is that you begin to look down on those who you think haven't discovered their true self. You look at your hometown that you grew up in and you look at at these people who are still following their same patterns and practices and you say, look at them. (laughs) They haven't discovered their true self like me. They're still shackled and, 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 and hampered. They're not free to be who they were meant to be. 
and you start to look down with contempt at those you think haven't attained the same self-actualization that you have. But another problem is, what happens if you fail? What happens if in your pursuit of discovering the true self, you don't? As a matter of fact, isn't that what a midlife crisis is? You think, oh, I want a career in law. And so you, you, you pursue that. You, you work your way up to a, being a partner. And now you're 45, you're virgin on 50, and you wonder, is this who I am? Have I really discovered my true self? And then what do you do? You, you snap and you buy a Ferrari because you want, to, you want to reinvest. And you think, I have failed. And there's so much anxiety and shame from not discovering my true self. So you reinvest in that, in that discovery again. But what does the Christian faith have to say to that? Um, one of the cardinal Christian doctrines is union with Christ. The idea that for a Christian, you are united with Jesus Christ. And so every other thing around your life is decentered as your identity. And your identity is primarily that you and Christ are one. That Christ has taken all of your sin as his and Christ has given you his righteousness as yours. And you are united with him. One of the consequences of this, therefore, is that Rather than being captivated and captured by this desire to discover your true self, you are now captivated with this one truth. Rather than pursuing the discovery of your true self, you recognize that you have been discovered by God. It was God who entered your world and found you. And so now you're free to explore your interest. But also if you never find out what you were really made to do, if you always live life unsure of whether this career was right for you, you realize that's okay because the, the primary goal of life was never to have everything on your shoulders to discover your true self and to actualize everything within you, but it was always to recognize that you have been discovered by God and that you are secure in Christ. And now you are truly free to live out the life that God has given you. Isn't that good news to a world that is riddled with anxiety every single minute trying to figure out, am I doing it right? Am I, am I, am I living life the way I'm meant to be? To then say, actually, the distinctiveness of Christianity is a balm to your heart. It can soothe and relieve you of the anxiety, the depression, the pressure to always live out every single moment as some fulfillment of the true self, but rather to live out the truth that you have been discovered by God. So even in the face of the temptation to be relevant to society, Jesus Christ says, actually, there are distinctives in the Christian faith that is worth bringing to society because it offers relief and refreshment to the world. If one temptation then is to be relevant to society, to lose your distinctiveness, another temptation is to seek to hide away from society, to be pure from society, to seek purity from society and withdraw. We see this in the second picture and the second metaphor. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Now, light, you know, has many, as a metaphor, has many meanings. And two primary ones are that it's, you know, it brings brightness and warmth to a place. And in that sense, Jesus Christ is saying that the church exists to expose darkness, but also to give life to the world. And in saying that, Jesus Christ says, listen, don't be confused. You are the light of the world, but you're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. The point here is that you might be faced with the temptation to hide and to withdraw, to say, oh, I have something to contribute to society. I recognize my distinctive. I know that the the church exists to expose darkness and to give life, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to attempt to hide. I'm going to put my light under a basket and withdraw. 
I think of the story of Jonah. Jesus Christ, go, um, God goes to Jonah and, and says, I want you to preach to the people of Nineveh. I want you to tell them that they need to repent because they, they are doing wicked acts. But Jonah says, oh, oh, no, no, no. I know how this works. If I go and preach to them, they're going to convert. They're going to believe in Yahweh, and you're going to forgive their sins. And now apparently I'm meant to be their brother and sister in Christ, and I don't want any of that. And so Jonah runs away. He says, I know that I have light to give. I have, um, I have been given the call to expose the darkness and to give life, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to hide. I'm going to put my light under a basket. Now, eventually, God gets Jonah to go to Nineveh, and they do believe. And God says, how could you not? care for these people who do not know their right from their left? Are they not more precious to me than, than the tree that was covering you that is now withered? God is saying to, to, to Jonah, you cannot hide the light that has been given to you. And God says to us, you cannot hide the light that has been given to you. Because God means to bless the world through the church, we have to look at the world as dear to us. The society is dear to us. And as such, Recognize that we are not called to seek purity from society, but to be involved and to be invested and to be present in society. Isn't that what light does? Light fills up the entire room. It fills up the entire space. And we are called to be present and involved. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes, Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Now, this quote is, is, is remarkable because Bonhoeffer is writing in a time where uh, Nazi Germany was, was at the height of its day. You know, Adolf Hitler was, was seeking to exterminate the Jews. And a lot of German Christians had um, uh, given in to, to Nazi Germany and said, OK, we're going to take their side because we don't want to be killed. We want to be persecuted. But a lot of Christians had also said, hey, we really don't like what Hitler's doing. We actually think it's immoral. But we also have families to feed. We have a life to live. And so what did they say? They said, we're going to hide. We're just going to withdraw. We won't protest and push back against Hitler, but we won't speak up. We will just withdraw. Let's just go into our corner. Let, let life happen. If, if someone's going to stand up against Hitler, that's great. But listen, I, I need to look after my kids. And Bonhoeffer says, no, no, that, that is not good enough. The church is meant to be involved. The church is meant to engage and be present a community of Jesus, which seeks to hide itself, has ceased to follow him. Um, one example, uh, two examples of this, one in the, in the early church period, is actually a, a saint by the name of St. Basil of Caesarea. Um, I think of him often when I think about what it looks like for the church to be involved and to be present in society. Um, he founded a philanthropic foundation known as the Basiliad, the new city. And this was in, in many ways, known as the world's first hospital, a monastery that provided food, shelter, clothing, um, community for, for those who were poor, who were orphans, who were widows, providing um, medical assistance to those who were ill, who had diseases. People would gather and come to this monastery to seek relief from the brutalities of life. And in many ways, what St. Basil did was say, we are here for this people. While we are pursuing the monastic life, that does not mean that we are not engaged. That does not mean that we are not involved and we are not present. We want to be present and invested in this community, in this society. As a matter of fact, for many of you, Central Western Church, isn't this what we do right now? 
Um, think about the um, Washington Montessori School. A lot of you have given your time and energy. You've met with the children. You've offered your, your time and assistance to serve the staff and the, and the teachers because you want to be engaged, be involved, be present in society. In 2020, we are still facing this coronavirus pandemic. But as a church, we haven't withdrawn and said, you know, people are suffering and struggling from this pandemic, but that's their business to deal with. We started a fund where we've raised over $18,000 to help those who are experiencing difficulties because of the pandemic, whatever shape that may take. Because we are saying it's not enough to withdraw from society. It's not enough to say we are distinct, but the world has nothing to benefit from us, so we are going to hide. We need to be distinct and present within society. Now, if the temptation, if we have one temptation then to be relevant to society, which is to lose our distinctiveness, and another temptation to hide from society, which is to say we are distinct, but we don't want to give and offer our distinctiveness to the world. The Jesus way that Jesus Christ offers when he says, this is how you influence society then, is to be a faithful presence within society. A faithful presence within society is how the Christian church influences society for the common good. It's one to say we are salt, we are distinct, we have something unique to contribute to this world, but also we are light and we are meant to fill up the space and we are meant to be present. We are meant to be faithful and we are meant to be present. We cannot lose our distinctiveness and we cannot seek to hide from the world, to be a faithful presence within society. How does that work? Well, one, Jesus Christ shows us when he talks about light of the world, he says, you are a city set on a hill. But then he also straight away says, you are also a light, you are also a lamp that has been lit. Which is to say, which is to say that you are, you are a faithful presence within society when you are in community as a church. But you're also a faithful presence within society as an individual. A city cannot be a city with one person. It takes a community to have a city. But also you're a, light, you're a lamp. Some, some translations say you're, you're a candle. So Jesus puts this contrast between a communal fulfillment of this vision and an individual fulfillment of this vision. So it's not enough to say, Central West End Church, in my opinion, is doing a very good job here. I'm just going to sit back. Um, I'm going to watch the church, invest in society, um, serve Washington Montessori School, help people who are in need. And I'm just going to sit back because the church is doing it for me. No, 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 no. We are called to be individual, lighter lamp, individual faithful presences within society. But it also you can't say... You know, I don't like the way the church is doing this. I don't like the way the Christian community has been involved in society. So I'm going to leave the church and do it all by myself. I'm going to go on my lonesome and seek to influence society for good by myself. I don't need the Christian community. No, no, no. You're a city. We are a community and we are also individuals. And God doesn't tell us it's one or the other. He says it's both and. That we influence society for good as a community, a city set on a hill, but we also do so as individual lamps that have been lit in a room. Now, what is the consequence of that? If we are faithful presence, if we are a faithful presence within society, the consequence is actually twofold. We read uh, in, or we saw last week that one of the consequences of being distinct in our Christian faith is that we will experience persecution. So verse 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you. On my account, when others um, um, persecute you for righteousness' sake. 
that you will experience persecution. But then we also read in verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So right in the middle, or right in the middle where we read about being salt and light, we're sandwiched between two realities. We will experience persecution, but people will praise God. Jesus Christ says actually both are a consequence of being distinct and being present. That because of your distinctiveness, yes, some people will say, how could you be a Christian? It's a contradiction. This, this belief system you hold to, this Jesus Christ you follow, doesn't make sense. And so there will be a degree of persecution that you experience. But also, <laughs> Jesus Christ says, they will see your good works and give glory to your Father. Which means you should also experience that. People say there is something attractive about the Christian faith. While I might not understand all of it, I can't deny that it's a healing presence and a healing good to this world. I think of it as this. It's the Christian faith should come across to the world and to society as a constructive contradiction. It doesn't make sense. It, it goes against the grain of our cultural idols. That is, there is this resistance that people will experience when they hear the Christian message. But it's also constructive that they can't deny that actually this contradiction that is Christianity is moving society forward. It is benefiting the world. I can't deny that when I see the Christian church engaged in society, I see the world improving. I see society flourishing. I see my community healing. And while I might not understand it, I want the church to stay around. And if you're not a Christian, you're listening to this, and you're thinking, what does this mean for me? I want to say, really, if you are exploring the claims of Christianity, you should say, yeah, it does make sense that there's some degree of constructive contradiction. I really don't understand everything here. But I, there, there should be parts that you see where you say, I can't deny that it's also bringing good, that the distinctiveness is also bringing healing to the world at the same time. And you know you're experiencing, or at least considering true Christianity, when you experience it as constructive contradiction. Now, where do we get the drive and the energy to do this? Where, where do Christians find the source to be constructive contradictions in society, to be a faithful presence within society? Well, it comes from recognizing that the true salt of the earth is Jesus Christ, who has come into our lives and salted us. That he brought his fullness and said, I have something unique to offer you that you cannot give yourself. You cannot possibly carry the weight of your sin by yourself, and I will carry it for you. And because Jesus Christ offers something unique for us, how can we not go into the world and seek to offer our distinctives to the world? But it's also to say that Jesus Christ is not just the true salt of the earth, he's also the true light of the world, present and involved. He entered our life. He didn't say, oh, they are going to hell in a handbasket and I am just going to step back and watch it happen. But Jesus Christ entered. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And he's ever present with us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, if Christ is the light of the world that has lighted our world and is always present with us, how can we not, empowered by his spirit, go into the world and seek to be a light to all around us, to be present in society, to show the good works that will lead to the praise of the Father? Because Christ is the light of the world and the salt of our earth, we can go into the world and be salt to the earth light to the world, a faithful presence within society. This is how the Christian church influences society for the common good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, 
come before you and recognize that the temptations before us to be relevant to society and to be ashamed of our distinctiveness or to be pure from society and seek to withdraw our real temptations that we face. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, we would indeed press into what you are calling us to be, a faithful presence within society, to be involved and to be engaged, but to hold to our distinctives and to recognize that the treasures that have been given to us in the Christian faith and tradition have something genuinely good to offer society. Let us see that goodness in our lives, and we ask that we would offer that goodness to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.